Welcome to Build Online. This is a new podcast from Grantland.com. It is not a BS report. You cannot get this on the BS report. You can only get this if you subscribe to Build Online on ESPN.com's Pod Center and on iTunes. Our first guest, Tom Haverstrow. How are you? Doing great, Bill. What's happening? Are you at spring training in Florida? That's right. Four Myers, uh, big Red Sox fan, checking out Red Sox, Mookie Betts. This year, this is uh, Jet, Jet Blue Park in Fort, uh, Fort Myers, Fenway South. It's a pretty incredible place right now. All right. I'm very excited for Mookie Betts, but that's it. We're never talking about baseball again on, the, on Build Don't Lie. We're talking <laughs> NBA. Uh, this is the stretch run. I actually enjoy this part of the NBA season when everybody shifts their attention to uh, March Madness, spring training, NFL draft, all this stuff. And, and the NBA is kind of in the dog days to some degree. First question, MVP race. Uh, I wrote about this last week in the trade value column on Grantland, which I think went on Tuesday. And I, and I knew I would change my pick basically uh, every 24 hours from that point on. Who do you have? Well, actually, first question. Who do you think will win the MVP? Not who not who do you think should win the MVP, but just who do you think the media will vote for for MVP if the season ended right now? Well, Bill, if we look at history, like historical standards, I think it's going to be Steph Curry's award to win this year because he comes from the best team in the NBA and he's putting up great numbers. And generally, I think he's you know, a media darling. So I think he's probably the front runner. Um, but it's so hard to pick. I mean, every day, like you said, it feels like there's a new... Uh, front runner James Harden, Russell Westbrook, LeBron, Chris Paul is in there. Anthony Davis wrote about him. His credentials on Friday. Um, I feel cool with just about any of those guys winning it, but I think Steph Curry is going to win it just because the team is so mind-blowingly good this year. I mean, historically good. Um, the point differential, looking back in the last 30 years, it's like the sixth highest point differential once you account for pace. They play really fast. Even when you account for pace, the Golden State Warriors are up there with the 2008 Boston Celtics, uh, with the Bulls teams, and with the 2005 San Antonio Spurs. So, Bill, if we're looking at history, it says best team, best player, and that's Steph Curry. I've been making this case for a couple weeks because that's just how it's gone. If they get to 67 or 68 wins, I don't think there's any way he doesn't win the MVP. Best player on a really, really historically good regular season team almost always wins the uh, the MVP with one exception, which was the 97 Bulls and MJ. When uh, I think they won 69, Carl Malone, the, the Jazz, went 64 and 18. MJ was the best player in the earth. Everybody knew it. And I actually wrote about this in my basketball book. At some point, like in March, everybody just got bored of talking about how great Michael Jordan was. And I think Jackie McMullen wrote the first piece on for Sports Illustrated basically saying, Hey, you know who's having an MVP type season? Carl Malone. Why not him? And all of a sudden it snowballed. And next thing you know, Carl Malone has just won the MVP. This is Jordan still in his prime. So um, I just think, I think this is different than baseball. Like, I get it. Like, Mike Trout can win the MVP in baseball on a 75 win team because there's 25 guys in baseball. It's an individual sport. You really can't make your teammates better. Um, the situation is what it is. In basketball, only five guys can play. Um, if somebody's playing 37 to 40 minutes a game, they're having a dramatic impact, not just on the game, but on their teammates too. And if they go 68 and 14, how do they not? How does he not win the MVP, Tom? I, I don't know. Um, the one thing he does, the knock on him, is that he hasn't played in 15 fourth quarters. 
<laughs> like, think wow. about that. They're so good that he sat out in 15 fourth quarters this year because they've been blowing out the opponents so badly. And so they're basically mercy ruling the opponents because Steph Curry, no one can guard him. No one right. can guard him. When you talk to the coaches about who is the toughest guard and, you know, toughest assignment in the league, you know, Steph Curry's up there, Russell Westbrook, Al Corver's actually up there, LeBron, of course. But with Steph, there really isn't any blueprint for a guy like him. I mean, maybe you point to Steve Nash, um, but this is a guy who is shooting 46% from three on nine attempts since the All-Star break. That's Which, amazing. I mean, you wrote about this in your column. I mean, you've never seen such prolific, efficient shooting ever. Yeah, when you're when you're taking 15 threes a game, which is basically what him and Clay Thompson do combined, and you're making between 40 and 50% per game, that's ridiculous. We've never seen anything like that before. And, and I actually think at some point, and I don't think it'll be this season, but I do think the discussion will start maybe over the summer when people get bored and we're trying to rile up topics just to get uh, a 24-7 news cycle going for a day. I think there's going to be a serious conversation about whether the three-point line should move back and whether it should be extended out by, I don't know, one feet, uh, one foot, maybe a foot and a half, something like that. Because if, you, if you're going to have nine, somebody shooting nine threes a game and making 45% of them, I, I don't know. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for you? Well, I will point out this, Bill, is that the three-point percentage is actually down this year. Um, it's a really weird thing. I think there are a couple factors. Uh, like league-wide, I think it's around 34.8% down from 36% last year. I might be wrong on a couple digits there, but basically three-point shooting league-wide, even though the attempts are through the roof, the field, the field goal percentage is actually down. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm not surprised ago. by that, are you? Because it feels like 80% of the people who take threes probably shouldn't be taking threes. <laughs> well, the map says they should. It's just from historical standards, like we just wouldn't – want it seems like there are a lot of Antoine Walkers out there right um, actually the you make a now. good point the 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 numbers and everything everybody has crunched has said you're actually better off even if you're making what 32 to 34 percent of your threes that's still yeah. somewhat of a weird advantage um but yeah I think the Celtics are a really good example they jack up threes I think they shoot 28 a game and yeah they don't really have anybody who can make them Isaiah Thomas makes them. Uh, I guess Olenek is pretty good for a stretch five. But other than that, it's it, they're all like in the low 30s, mid 30s for the most part. But they don't care because that's how they want to play. And they feel like that's their style is pace and space. Keep jacking them up. I don't right, know if that's, right. a, that's a good thing. I think but in the hands, I'd be interested to see what the stats are for like the best 25 guys this season compared to other seasons. You know what I mean? Like, that's just a, cut out that's everyone That's a good else. call. That's a good call. So, like, whether even the, the most prolific shooters are actually shooting at a higher percentage. Like, for a while, Steph Curry was not shooting well this year. And he's right. been on a tear recently. Um, and I think a few years ago, when Mark Jackson was coaching Steph, I said, I argued that he should take 10 a game. Like, there's no excuse for a guy who's that good at shooting threes uh, if he's shooting, like, four or five a game. It just didn't make any sense. It was like having this trump card in your back pocket that you just never, never played. And it seems like Steve Kerr is finally um, seeing that, like, when you have a guy who's shooting almost 50% from the three-point land, it's a no-brainer to let him have the green light at any opportunity because he's so good at pull-ups, too. It's not just like he's taking bad shots um, 
by his standard. I mean, his standard, he can shoot, you know, a pull-up jumper off the dribble backwards better than right. most people stand catch alone three. So he's just kind of breaking everything we know about how to guard point guards. And, and I'll say this, like when Will Chamberlain was putting up ridiculous numbers, they, they, I think there was discussion like raising the hoop or something like that. And I think this would be probably an overreaction to Steph Curry. If they moved the three-point line a foot back just to rein in like a couple of the shooters, Right. I don't know if that would be the answer, but I do think that defenses are getting so much smarter now that I think we're seeing the pendulum switch back, which is like, um, you know, every three-pointer is going to be guarded like hell now. And 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was, let that guy shoot. Yeah, I want to be clear. I don't think they should move the – I don't think they should touch the three-point line. I think, like with anything else, you need to give a trend a couple of years to for the defenses or whoever to adjust. And in yep. this case – um, and it, this is something that they didn't do well enough in the mid-90s. You know, defenses got better in the, in the early 90s because of the Pistons, because of Riley's Knicks, because of the Bulls. And it became harder and harder to get good shots. And instead of giving the offenses a couple of years to adjust, they panicked. They moved the three-point line in. And you watch some of those games from that era, and it's like it was 21 feet to make a three. You know, and it, and it kind of bastardized what was going on. It was a, it was a false fix. And I, I think the same thing would happen here. I think they need to give defenses two to three years to adjust how to run guys out at threes all the time. But as Zach and I talked about recently when we did our podcast about this, um, I think it's I think it's putting a big toll on these guys on both ends. I think they have to play defense so hard now all the time. They can just cannot take breaks. Like you're playing Atlanta, you have to run out of Kyle Korver every single time. That I do wonder if it's going to, like, this could be the impetus maybe to shorten the schedule a little bit because I think these guys play too hard night to night on both ends. I don't know if it's sustainable. Yeah, Bill, that, that, that's kind of <laughs> sacrilegious to say, right? Like, if you if you talk to old-timers, and I'm totally with you on this, like, if you talk to old-school guys, the guys today have it so much easier. They didn't have to deal with the pounding or the forearms, the shimmies and the paint coming down the lane. Like, it just was a rougher game back then, but... I would argue the opposite is I don't know how many guys would be able to stick it if they had to guard Al Horford at the spot at the three point line and then yeah. cover Paul Mills at the three point line. It'd be a terror. It'd be impossible for a lot of these guys who are just like heavyweights trying to be welterweights or trying to get out there at the three point line. Um, I would venture, you know what? This should be a project we do is we watch a game from the seventies or eighties and try to get like the sport view cameras to somehow track the distance traveled for each big man and compare it to today and just say, like, the average big man runs an extra half mile or whatever it is compared to what they did, and it's the equivalent of, like, an extra 20 games on the season, you know? I, like, I, I, I would really want to see that. See, I guarantee that perimeter defenders run much more now. I don't think there's any question. And, you know, I, I obviously watched – I grew up watching those games. Then I watched a bunch of them again when I was working on my book for three years. And – you can see it now when NBA TV shows the old games or the Lakers channel shows them or whatever is guys didn't play hard on defense. They played hard the last six minutes. Um, But for the most part, you could get to wherever you went on the court. You really had to just run around. Fast breaks were pretty easy for the most part. I think there's been a little bit of a revisionist history about how much tougher it was back then because the stuff we remember is like Jordan playing the Pistons and getting knocked down every play. (laughs) That was the playoffs, and that was a specific team. If you played in the West Coast, nobody touched you. You were scoring 140, 150 points in some of those playoff games. 
So right, but I think it's that a lot doesn't harder fit the now. narrative, Bill. Doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah, no, it's true, and I think coaching's much better now. And you know, the other thing that Pete, there's so much that goes into basketball now. And you think of what it was back then. Like Bill Fitch was called, um, I forget what his nick that Captain Video, and it was like, oh, Bill Fitch, he's crazy. He watches game tapes. He studies tapes. <laughs> now it's like, think about the amount of preparation that teams have. Like, like let's say you're playing the Warriors and Clippers are playing in a playoff series. Think about how much data the Warriors have about the Clippers. They know yep. every single shot that every single Clipper loves to do, the exact point on the floor. They know all the plays that are run to set up those shots. They know all the plays that they do coming out of a timeout. And it's almost too much information, but I think it's just so much harder for offenses to be good these days. Um, but it's good. I mean, ultimately, it's a good thing for the product, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I talked to Chris Paul about this um, a few months ago where he was like, I live in Synergy. I watch Synergy all the time. And you just you wonder how many guys are like him, you know, like where, that they just study pick-and-roll tendencies. And 30 years ago, you couldn't even dream about that. You would watch right. like maybe a game as, as part of your pregame prep. But Chris Paul is, is watching hundreds of pick-and-rolls by Dame Lillard. When they play. So it's a totally well, then on top of game. that, think about, think yeah. about League Pass. LeBron's yep. home on a Monday night. He's not playing. What's he doing? Hey, he's watching basketball. Um, and he's getting to see all these guys 20 to 25 to 30 to 35 times a season when he's not playing them. Whereas in the 80s, you know, trust me, I was there. Like, unless it was the Lakers, Celtics, or Sixers, you weren't on TV. And if you were on TV, you might be on USA Network or some of that stuff. Like, hotel rooms didn't have those channels. So I, I just think guys are much more familiar. Like, I was really fascinated. I don't know if you saw the Phoenix-Houston game the other day, but P.J. Tucker did a terrific job on James Harden. And the stuff he did, somebody on SB Nation broke this down really well. Like Basically what he did was he stayed in front of them, but he didn't he didn't bite on any of the James Harden moves. James Harden has this way of – does those weird crossovers, herky-jerk hesitations, and people always lurch forward and then he goes by them. And P.J. And PJ Tucker just kind of waited on it, just stared at his chest and just waited for Harden to come toward him. And Harden was just just flummoxed <laughs> by whatever was going on. But I was thinking, like, PJ Tucker probably watched 10 Houston games trying to figure out how to stop him. I don't know you could have done that 30 years ago. No, no. And, and think of, they don't have DVR back then either. So, like, if right. you wanted to watch a play over again, you can't just hit the five second rewind button, right? So, yeah. like, even small things like that probably incrementally adds to the education of these players. It's just they get that much smarter. And, and I, I watched, um, you know, I was there for Portland-Miami the other night when somehow Miami won. And yeah. the last two possessions, you know, sideline out of bounds, Terry Stotts, usually one of the more creative, uh, you know, out of the timeout, drawing up a play. And the Heat scouted both plays. They had to call timeout because Nick Batum couldn't get it in. Right. And he just, they just couldn't get open. And that was, you know, against one of the top, X's and O's guys in the game. Well, I was going to say that they, that Damian Lillard play no longer works. That won the playoff series. I think Portland could just scrap that from the uh, from the playbook. <laughs> Everyone knows it's coming. Oh, Damian Lillard's over on the right side. I, gee, I wonder what he's going to do. But I, I was thinking about <laughs> um, college hoops because I watched you know a fair share of March Madness this weekend and on uh, Thursday and Friday, and the coaching is just so bad compared to what we watch in the NBA. You know, like you could you, on Twitter. 
myself included, complaining about people like Monty Williams and Byron Scott, people like that. Those guys are like Mensa students compared to some of the college guys we've watched. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I do think the coaches that stand out in the NBA really stand out. Like, I think what Stevens has done with the Celtics is incredible. I think what Buds has done in Atlanta is incredible. That Kerr took last year's Warriors team and turned it into this year's Warriors team, we, really with one training camp and that's it, I think that was incredible. But you go on down the line, there's nine guys in the NBA that are just operating at a different level. But quickly on the Warriors, um, you mentioned the point differential. Um, when I was doing my book – and I was trying to measure the greatest teams of all time. I didn't really have a ton to go on statistically because the advanced metric stuff hadn't really taken off yet. I didn't really trust the stats that much. The one thing I really thought was useful and helpful was point differential. because, And not just for the regular season, but the playoffs too. Because that, to- that tells you basically Team A routinely kicks the shit out of Team B, Team C, Team D, whatever. And they are, they are in double figures plus 10 which to my recollection is not common. I think there couldn't have been more than somewhere between 8 to 12 teams all time that have been plus 10. But the stats we didn't have back then when I was doing the book, which was six years ago now, offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency, and they're number one in both of those categories. Explain how crazy that is. It's, it's unprecedented. I mean, it's, it's absurd. And, and Bill, they're number one in pace, too. So, right. like... There are three categories. Now, pace is just a descriptor. It's just like describing how a team plays, not whether they're good or not. You can be a really fast team and not be good at defense or offense. But it's not really that, you know, uh, in terms of how good they are, pace doesn't really matter. But it's just so unique. To have a good, I, I talked to someone recently um, about this, just how hard is it to have a top defense and a top pace? Because it's just, you want to grind it out. You want to slow down the game. Um, you know, the same way that Chicago and Indiana just grind it to a halt and makes you play, you know, uh, basically wrestle um, in the paint. It's just so hard to do. But the the way that the Golden State Warriors do that um, is they switch. They switch a ton uh, more than I think every every team in the league right there with the 76ers. Just just to let you know that it doesn't always work out. You know, the Sixers are probably better than most people think on the defense then. But just the Warriors, they do something that not every team can do, which is they have so many versatile defenders. Nick Wadala, Clay Thompson, uh, Andrew Bogut is not, you know, obviously going to be able to guard point guards. But the way that he chucks guys, and then you have Draymond Green, who I think is the defensive player of the year, it's just that brand of basketball is so hard to do um, while playing fast. I, I, I want to say Mike Budenholzer should get coach of the year, but when now that we're talking about it, it's just so it's incredible to see what Steve Kerr has done overnight to get them to play number one on both ends um, and do it in pace. It's just we've never seen anything like this before, Bill. Yeah, Buds, the, the recent Hawks uh, very, very mini swoon has, has hurt his cause a tiny bit. I think if the Warriors win in the high 60s, that Kerr should get it. Um, the, the one thing, you know, I think people, myself included, and probably you too, uh, revered those mid two thousand Suns teams. I wrote a piece once upon a time about how you know the concept of a critically acclaimed sports team, and that's how that team is going to be remembered. I think they didn't they didn't even make the finals, but we're always going to remember that team. And there's been other teams in other sports like that, going back to like uh, 
you know, the the 1974 Dutch soccer and stuff like that. Right. But um, the Warriors are basically the mid 2000s Suns if they could have played defense, right? Isn't that a fair evaluation? Yeah, yeah, and especially with the Steve uh, Nash Steph Curry comps. I mean, it's just all right there. Steph, Steph Curry. I actually looked this up. He's shooting like 37 percent of his threes are like three makes are unassisted. So he's creating those. And Steve yeah. Nash was something like 48% of his threes were unassisted. So in terms of creating off the dribble um, and a pick-and-roll offense and, and basically shooting from three, playing up-tempo, I've always said that the Phoenix Suns have gotten a bad rap for their defense. Uh, Mike D'Antoni, too. It's just people were so narrow-minded to just look at points per game and see that they ranked in the bottom five in points per game. And that's only because they were running up and down the floor 150 possessions a game. And so, you know, when you do pace-adjusted stats, which are really, really important when looking at teams that have inflationary style to play, they weren't so bad. They were middle of the pack defensively. And I think it's important for the legacy of Mike D'Antoni. I look at, like, what could he do with the Washington Wizards right now? Like, if you have Brad Beal, John Wall, uh, Paul Pierce, or something like that, it'd be crazy to watch what he would do to that team. Um, So, I think you're right. I think we, we haven't seen anything like this before. And even the Phoenix Suns is probably the best cop. Um, and they're probably better defensive than everyone thought. Yeah, I remember Kurt told me a couple months ago he thought their defense was ahead of their offense, which I thought was amazing because, <laughs> I mean, he thought the offense was going to catch up, but he's just like, first two months, our defense has been better than our offense. Like, wow, everyone <laughs> loves your offense. That's high praise. You make a good point on D'Antoni. And this is, you know, this is, a classic case of money money doesn't always make you happier, right? He he had a perfect Suns team and then he goes to the Knicks and you know, he he picked the contract, not the team. Wrong team for mm-hmm. him, his system doesn't work, goes to the Lakers. Worst possible personnel for everything he wants to do basically. And yep. I really wish like I think the Chicago was on the table and they just didn't offer as much as the Knicks did. I don't know if Chicago would have been perfect for what his offense is, but he certainly would have had a better chance. But I would like to see him coach. I I would like to see him get one more crack in the NBA. And I hope he's made enough money at this point that he would choose that last job really carefully. And, and like I Washington is a great example, even though they're a little bit older, I think he could ride that backcourt and figure out the rest of it later. But I would love to see him pick a team like that. Orlando, uh, some sort of young run and gun team, but he, I, I really hope he comes back with the right personnel. I still think his style would work, you know. Yeah, I mean, he gave birth to like an era of spread pick and roll. He and Stan Van Gundy, spread pick and roll, surround their big with shooters, and and Chicago, I, I kind of see like Jokey Noah as being that Boris out for them. It's just a do everything guy who can shoot, who can dribble, who can pass. Um, so yeah, now I'm like. Uh, with Mike Dunleavy and uh, and Mirthish just seems like a perfect fit for D'Antoni, but maybe maybe it happens. Who knows? Maybe Tiz is out and uh, Mike D'Antoni is in after the season. Who knows? But yeah, um, the Golden State Warriors—they're doing something special, and I think we're at this point, Bill, where we're not going to really believe them until they do it. And that's 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 what's so great about the NBA is as good as they are, I'm still curious to see if they'll be able to perform in the postseason against the likes of San Antonio, against the likes of, um, you know, Memphis Grizzlies, who have been there, have been in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, I want to see what happens. I think they can do it. But the fact that they're this good in the regular season 
it just pre- creates all this great theater for down the road. Yeah, I thought the Grizzlies were going to give them the biggest issue. And then the Grizzlies just haven't played well for the last couple of weeks for them. I, I thought the Grizzlies were going to be the team that came out of the West. Um, and, may, and maybe they'll they'll get it back at some point. Maybe it's just like a you know three-fourths of the season blues or whatever. San Antonio's emergence, um, you know, we've kind of been waiting for it. I didn't think it could happen unless Parker started to look like Parker again. And now he looks like Parker again. So what do you think on that? Look, um, Kawhi Leonard, I know you don't like RPM, but we just got the numbers updated this week. Uh, any, any measure you want, actually. Just look at any measure. I think Kawhi Leonard is awesome. Even though, um, even though Tony Parker hasn't looked great, I mean, he's looked better, but the Kawhi Leonard emergence after all his issues early in the season, I think that's bigger. I think that's bigger for them. If he can yeah. play defensive player of the year type stuff on the perimeter and score 20 points and just be able to do uh, basically the Swiss Army knife like LeBron, it's going to be terrifying. And I think when you look at uh, they moved Thiago Splitter into the starting lineup in the same way that the Memphis Grizzlies went to Tony Allen in the starting lineup recently. I think it's going to probably, you know, um, it's going to ba- basically settle that rotation a little bit for for the Spurs. But I think yeah. Kawhi Leonard, a real dark horse in the Defensive Player of the Year conversation. He's been he's, amazing. He's been crazy. Uh, I mean, certainly the eye test backs up whatever metrics you want to throw at that one because – it's yep. like as soon as he's over half court when the other team has the ball, he's just a threat to just come and take the ball from anybody. He's he's roaming around like a like a like a mugger. It's uh, he's just out of his mind. It's it's great to watch. I still felt like, you know, I think it's too easy to stop their offense the last four minutes unless Parker can create shots. Otherwise, you're relying on an offense that I I just think can be stopped unless Duncan has some amazing level that uh, that he can get to one last time. Kawhi's three-point shooting is a problem. I wrote about that last week. I think it, unless he can get his threes back up, that changes fundamentally what they are offensively because one of the things that worked for them in the playoffs the last two years was that they always had shooters around the circle that could shoot. Yep. And if he can't make threes, then that, that shifts how people defend them, I think. Yeah, totally. And I think, uh, you know, Miami's having the same issue now is they have two guys in Whiteside and Dwayne Wade who do not shoot threes. And the same way that the Spurs, they got two guys, you know, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker isn't a great three-point shooter. He'll do it in, in the flow of the offense, but he's nowhere near, you know, Steph Curry or whoever it is, um, James Harden or anything like that. So they need to get their three-point shooting to kind of space the floor. Uh, but this is you know, like when people were writing off the Spurs or saying that they're finally done, this is it. Like this is where we're, what we were all waiting for. Um, I wasn't ready because and Bill, me neither. I, I was thinking in this era we were just talking about how everyone scouts each other. I think we're going to see a zig where everyone's zagging, where the Spurs are going to be unpredictable, improvisation, move the ball quickly, don't necessarily run X's and O's in the same way that the Atlanta Hawks, where if you don't have X's and O's or, or plays drawn up, you're not going to be predictable. And if you have guys who are going to be live threats everywhere on the floor like the Spurs were last year in the final, that's that's going to be impossible to defend. And the Heat got run off the floor because every guy was a threat to dribble, pass, or shoot. And so I think the less plays that are drawn up, it's going to be harder to scout. And I think you know the San Antonio Spurs, that's how they feasted on the Heat last year. 
My uh, my fear for them and Popovich, as has been written about extensively, has done a great job of trying to fight this. Is the fact that in 2012 they went to Game Six of the Western Finals, 2013 Game Seven Finals, last year uh, five game finals, a lot of miles from a playoff standpoint. Now the caveat there is. They've they've really really consciously tried to protect these guys from logging regular season minutes, and I think if any team can fight that off, it's them. But in general, uh, those those four year huge grind um, year after year type situations, especially when 2012 was the lockout season, so you know 66 games plus making the Western Finals with what kind of a sprint that was to get to the playoffs. Um, that's just a lot of miles. So I that's. I do wonder if they're going to have their legs the whole time. Um, but I think right now you'd have to say Golden State, San Antonio, maybe Memphis. I don't see anybody else in the West that, that I could see in the finals. Do you? Yeah, it's tough. I was going to put Portland in there, but not without uh, Yeah, not without Matthews. Yeah. So um, they were up there right up until a couple of weeks ago when West went out, which is devastating because uh, they just can't. They can't defend nearly as well um, without him. He's just a really, really great perimeter defender and one of, and sneaky one of the best three point shooters in the league. Yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, that's a devastating blow. And of, of course, OKC without KD. Who knows what's going to happen without Serge Ibaka? Um, yeah, I, I know what's going to happen. They're going to lose. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard. Like I actually feel like I was kind of surprised. I saw today that since KD went out. Um, you know, this right after the All Star break, the Thunder are ten and five with Russell Westbrook. Not great, but actually a little better than I suspected, just because of the media coverage about them being better with him off the floor and all this stuff. And right. I don't think they're going to go far, but I do think that they're a little bit better um, than people think. They think that that's second best offense since February first, so they can score. But when you have a turnstile and Enos, Enos Tanner out there. It's not going to be good. Defensively, they're just awful without Ibaka. It's just awful. Like yeah. the Celtics put up eight, 118 on them on Wednesday night and didn't even play well. You know, <laughs> it's, you're just going to get layups and threes whenever you want against them. And I think. Wait, Bill. Bill, are you going to be? Are you worried that you know Stevens is going to have enough time to coach the Celtics when he's going to be the president of the United States? Like, are you worried about that? Oh, I thought you were going to say the next coach of Indiana. I was going to hang up on you. <laughs> I haven't let I, anyone who's sending me those emails. I have not appreciated them. Uh, yeah, no, I think he can. I think he can campaign while he runs the team. And, you think so? You know, it's, I've been doing a lot of scoreboard watching, and uh, it's weird. If they get the seventh seed, they play Cleveland. Cleveland's the one team they'd have no chance in hell of ever beating because the best two players on the court would be so significantly Cleveland's that I don't see yeah. how that. But Atlanta's a team they've played pretty well. You know. And I, and I do feel like they could kind of hang in Atlanta series. I don't think they'd win it, but I think it would be, you know, it'd go, it would go five or six. But uh, Marcus Smart might have killed their season with the Matt Bonner ball punch uh, this what weekend. What was that? What the hell yeah. was that all about? It was terrible. And it, and it cost them that Detroit game. They had to play Phil Pressey like 50 minutes yesterday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, la- last question on, uh, on, on the MVP thing. So we both think Curry's going to win. Who do you think should win? You know, I go back and forth. I wrote about this on Friday. I felt really good about Steph Curry, and then I came up with the Anthony Davis. I discovered not just that he's been clutch, 
but he's won several games for them in the clutch and yeah. way more than anybody else in the league. So win probability added, it's not a perfect stat. It's not, you know, whoever wins that should win MVP. But I think it is pretty telling that when you add up all the big shots that he's hit from a win probability added standpoint, so at every game state, there is a win probability for each team. And Anthony Davis has added more probability to his team with his shots, with his turnovers, lack thereof, than anybody in the league. He's had it eight wins, eight wins this season, and no one else is more than five. So I want to say it's Steph Curry, and I don't think, Bill, I think we will probably be chastised for saying, like, oh, this is an archaic, old-school notion of, you know, it's stupid, it's dumb to just pick the best player on the best team. But I do think that Steph Curry has had the best season from beginning to end so far out of everybody. Because if you look at Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook, uh, LeBron James, they've missed games. And so this isn't the best story. This isn't the best, you know, two months MVP. This is the entire season. And when you look at the numbers, it's really hard for me to say that anyone's been better through the entire season than Steph Curry. And also the personality he brings to the table and the fact that they've had the best chemistry in the league, and that's a big reason why they're winning. And he's the best player in the team and the biggest reason why they have great chemistry. You but know, he's he, a great but, teammate. That matters. But but then you look at the fact that Russell Westbrook this year, per 100 possessions, when you adjust for pace, he's averaging 41 points, 13 assists, and 11 rebounds. What do you do with that? I know. 41, Wait. 13, and 11. Like, how do you even say he's not MVP? It's... you. It's so hard for me to, to deal with all this because there's so many good candidates, and then there's James Harden, who has been amazing this year. But Russell Westbrook, 43, 13, and 11. And only one other guy has done that before in the last like, 50 years once we had those uh, pace numbers. It's LeBron James in 2009. And so right. it's right there, 40, 10, and 10. Russell Westbrook is doing that right now. Yeah, see, I feel like if you're going to make a one-man pull the one guy off the team, how much would the team fall apart argument for somebody? I think Harden is the best candidate for that because I don't know how Houston even has a chance to be a three-seed. When you look (laughs) at all the games Dwight missed, um, you look at all the guys that have kind of come in and out of their lineup. Remember they were playing the Greek guy for a while? They're playing starting Josh Smith for a while. Like a lot of Corey Brewer – um, Beverly was in and out. Terrence Jones gets hurt, comes back, gets hurt, comes back. That that team just has not been static at all, except for Harden. And it just doesn't seem to matter who's out there with them. They they win two out of every three games. You know, yeah, that, that's got to yeah. matter. And and the minutes matter, right? The minutes matter. Um, so James Harden playing at an MVP caliber level for hundreds of minutes more than. Than Russell Westbrook and Anthony Davis. That matters. But I, it's still just remarkable to me. When you look at fourth quarter minutes with Steph Curry, it's not his fault. Like, he is so good that he's just basically made fourth quarters negligible, like obsolete. And right. so 300 minutes, he's played 300 fewer fourth quarter minutes than DJ Augustine this year. So, like, DJ Augustine has like 620, and Steph Curry has 330 or something like that. And that that isn't his fault, but the reason why there aren't all those moments where he wins games for Golden State is because he wins them in the first quarter, in the second quarter, in the third quarter. Um, so James Harden, the interesting thing about that is actually on the on-court, off-court stuff, the Warriors suffer more when Steph Curry's not on the floor. I know that sounds counterintuitive, 
But when you yeah. look at the numbers, and I'm, I don't think that it's everything because it, you know, bench units and all that stuff. But when Steph Curry goes off the floor, it damages the the Warriors more um, statistically than what the Houston Rockets when James Harden goes off the floor. So I think Steph Curry has that argument too. They would be a good team, but in terms of all time, I mean, we're talking about a good team going to an all-time great team regular season. That matters too. Yeah. And that's why I'd vote for Curry right now. But if they end up at sixty-four and eighteen, then then might change my thinking a little bit. But I don't know. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm I like a lot of the advanced metrics, and I, I love in general where it went. I'm not sure that we factor in durability enough. And I think that the fact that James Harden is basically going to play, I think, eighty-one games, and he's going to play thirty-seven minutes a game. And in the last six minutes of the game, every single thing they do runs through him. Um, I think that matters. And it's not just like from, oh, he stayed on the court. It's like the mental stress of doing that, the physical stress of getting fouled 10 times a game and just keep coming back, coming back like a battering ram. To me, all that stuff matters. And we don't have stats that really um, show how important that is for durability other than just games played and minutes played. You know, it's not rocket science. Yeah. It's, it's like, all right, this guy played 81 games. He played 37 minutes a game and he does everything for them in every close game that they play. Um, I don't know. I think well, that's your Well, matter. Bill, let me jump in for a second on that because there is a metric. Like if you take win shares per 48, which you'll see yeah. on basketball reference. I like that one. That one is a per minute stat, right? But then there's win shares, which will give James Harden the, the value of minutes. It's, it's a playing time-based stat. So it's a counting stat in the same way that war is in baseball. Is that the more you play at a high level, those minutes add up. And so win shares for 48, when you translate it to win shares, that's actually a playing time-adjusted stat. So that actually accounts for James Harden's durability, and maybe not in the same sense that you're talking about how everything goes through him, but also – War on ESPN, WAR, is RPM when adjusted for playing time. And actually, James Harden has outpaced Steph Curry by, like, a, a hair, by, like, a, just, like, no, nothing, basically a sliver. Um, yeah. Outpaced Steph Curry, even though on a per-minute basis or a per-possession basis, Steph Curry has been better. But in terms of durability and playing time, James Harden wins out in war. All right. It's tough. Well- we have to move on. I don't. We. we I was going to talk about defensive player of the year, but we. That was. That story was beaten up last week pretty well. I. The only thing I'll say on DeAndre is that, I do think the Clippers are atrocious defensively, and even if they're in the middle of the pack, um, I. I shudder to think what would happen if him and Chris Paul weren't out there, because they have some of the worst defensive players I've ever seen in my life, and frequently three to four of them are playing at the same time, um, and. From an eye test standpoint, I do feel like he does make people think. He does make people think about when they're driving in the basket, is he there or not? And that's one of those variables that I'm not positive there's a great – I'm not positive we figured out the right metric for that. Maybe there's some shot chart thing they could do. But, like, that was the famous thing about Bill Russell, right, where you read anything about Bill Russell and it was guys were afraid to dribble in the paint. They would just rather settle for an off-balance shot over challenging him. And uh, and I do think he's one of the guys in the league who does that. But if you're going to pick defensive player based on that, you go with Gobert because nobody alters everybody's thinking the way Gobert does right now. I think. What do you think? Yeah, it's like DeAndre Jordan makes opposing teams think, but Rudy Gobert makes the opposing teams cry. <laughs> it's right. like it's it's just 
it's like going against that guy is so hard. And just like you said in a Bill Russell way, they just don't even knock on the door. Yeah. They're standing on the, across the street because they're just too afraid of that guy. So in the same way, I think Hassan Whiteside is, is another guy who terrorizes opponents. He just hasn't had the minutes. Um, and, and you look at Rudy Gobert or Andrew Bogut. Um, a lot of these guys, they just do not let guys into the paint or you just don't want to go into the paint against them. But, uh, yeah, like DeAndre Jordan, it's just very hard for me to pick a guy when they have an all-defensive point guard like Chris Paul as defensive player of the year if your team is close to bottom 10 in the league. And so it's, it's really hard for me to do that. And when Doc Rivers is campaigning for, you know, DeAndre Jordan and saying he's carrying the team defensively, how do you think that makes Chris Paul feel? Right. That's so weird. Like, if my coach is campaigning for someone who's, you know, carrying them defensively and people don't understand what he does defensively, and you got a first-team, all-perennial first-team, all-defender at the point guard possession, I don't position i don't know how that makes you feel and who destroys guards when he wants to yeah i think doc i think doc's mentality there is is just to pump up deandre be his hype man because he doesn't run plays for him at all they don't run plays for deandre like literally they don't want one play for him in a game so i think he's got deandre to buy into the defense rebounding thing that's what he wants from him and as yep. his reward he goes out and he hypes him i'm yep. with you I, I think draymond is the defensive player of the year because not just because of how their team's doing, but just the Swiss Army knife, which you talked about with Kawhi. It's even more there with with uh, Draymond because they've even played him at center sometimes. You know that guy goes everywhere they need him to go, and uh, and they do not suffer. And um, you know I'm a big fan of rewarding guys from good teams. Uh, yeah, and, and real oh, quick on that, when Andrew Bogut went out, everyone thought that defense was going to collapse, but actually defensive efficiency stayed the same. Uh, which was really telling to me. So even when they lost Andrew Bogut, that defense is still just as nasty, which I think puts uh, Draymond Green over the edge for me. I think he's, he's the pick right now. Tom, we will check you out on ESPN.com. Keep working your butt off. Say hi to Mookie Betts for me, and we'll talk to you soon. You got it, man. Go suck. All right. Uh, it's a tradition. Anytime I launch a new podcast, Mark Stein is on the first one. It's only a tradition that's happened uh, in one other podcast, which was the BS Report. But we're doing it here as well on the Bill Don't Lie. Mark Stein, how are you? Says so on Wikipedia, so it's got to be true. Yeah. Uh, I, have you done sobbing after? Are you done sobbing after the Steve Nash retirement, or are the tears still flowing? You know, I can't say that I'm sobbing because this was one of those deals where. Right, you knew it was coming. I knew. I think you probably did too. You knew yeah. he's been retired since October, and I yeah. just couldn't report it. Couldn't say anything. So uh, he was ready to do it then, the Lakers. You know, we did write about it. We didn't write that it was specifically that was a deal, but the Lakers wanted to trade him. Yeah. And uh, he said, fine. You know, he knows that they gave up a ton to get him, so he went along with it. Um, but he was, he was itchy to do it. He wanted to get that. You know, I sat down with him Friday. He was ready to hit send on that letter. You know, he, I think he, he wants to try to move on. Yeah. Um, how's our boy Dirk doing? He seems rallying a little bit, I think. He's what looked is better. It? He's looked Oh go ahead. Oh, I thought you guys were talking. He he uh he's looking better here. Uh his team is a bit of in a bit of an iffy state right now. I'm sure you've seen all the stuff about Monte Oof. Ellis who did not cover himself in glory Sunday night in Phoenix. No. Uh, I mean they're 
it's hard to see them doing much in the playoffs, and that's really all Nowitzki cares about. So I, I think in the you know in the grand scheme, he's not the happiest he's ever been. But I basically told him already that uh, he has to play till 41, like Nash did. So as long as he sticks to that, everything will be fine. Not, yeah, not but- I'm, I'm not ready to contemplate an NBA with no Nash. No kid, no Grant Hill, no Nowitzki, and no Tim Duncan, no KG. That's that's gonna that's gonna be hard for me. So Duncan and Nowitzki need them to stick around for a few more years. Did you see that there's only ten guys left from the nineties? It's depressing, man. We're getting we're old. just old. We are getting just old. Old people. Uh, I mean, Andrew Bogut the other day we had him on the radio. It's been ten years since he was the number one pick. What is going on around here? That's amazing. Um, how unhappy is the Dallas situation internally compared to what we're actually seeing externally? Yeah, it's not good right now. I mean, they've been basically a 500 team since the All-Star break, and there's a lot of uncertainty there because Monte's going into free agency. Tyson Chandler's going into free agency. Um, they signed Rondo. Parsons to you, this You big left deal. out Rondo. Uh, and Rondo's going into free agency. I knew I was forgetting somebody. Yeah. And Rondo's going into free agency. So nobody knows what's going to happen yet. I I think Rondo is going to get a bigger offer elsewhere. I think the Lakers and the Knicks are both going to be desperate, and they're going to strike out elsewhere, and I think they're going to throw more money at Rondo than the Mavs want to pay. The way things are going with Monte Ellis right now, I don't think the Mavs are going to give him what he wants. Yeah. To me, Tyson Chandler, they lost him once, cannot lose him again. People don't realize how valuable he is behind the scenes. I mean, he really is the emotional glue of that team and the locker room policeman and everything. They got to keep him. So uh, I think that's probably priority number one. But unless there is some sort of miraculous turnaround in the playoffs and, you know, the lights come on and, and 2012 Rajon Rondo comes back, I mean, there, there could be significant change for the Mavs again this offseason. Not great for Dirk. No, but he does tend to roll with the punches pretty good. I mean, I think if you go back to early in his career, and this is somewhat tied to Nash, you know, Dirk was Dirk kind of had a KG reputation in that. Oh, he hates change. You cannot yeah. spring change on Nowitzki. He's not gonna like. He's you know, think about all the changes he's been dealing with since Nash left. He's had a lot of curveballs thrown at him, and he handles them pretty well. So, um. Also, he won the title. Yeah, once and, you win the and, title, and, it's all gravy. And he, but and it you know, took a long, long time. You know, Nash right. left in two thousand four. Took seven years. Right, but I'm saying and, now, post title, it's like everything's. You know, he's going to retire with the Mavs. He's not changing teams. Um, he signed a very team friendly deal that I'm sure Cuban will be rewarding him with after his retirement. Ridiculously team friendly. He doesn't get enough credit for how much money. He, I mean, the last two deals, how much money he's left on the table. It's. It was $16 million the first time, and I don't know how many million last time, 50 or 60 Yeah, but he's going to get credit when he's the new president of Magnolia Entertainment when he retires. The thing <laughs> is, though, I don't, know that, like, I, can't, I don't know that that does anything for him. Like, he, he's not yeah. – he, he's, he's Dirk is not going to be filming a, a uh, five-part series for Grantland on the, when, he's, when he's in his last year. That, that's not him. So. No. He'd, pro- he'd probably – like the part where he actually just got to hang out for the five parts, but he would have wanted to air. Uh, what do you what do you hear now around the league about just who who people like to make the finals and who people are afraid of and what team's coming on? Well, What's it's funny. We just right had now? this talk last night on the radio. Winhurst, El Hassan, and I. Yeah. And you know, 
Winher said it pretty well, and it was hard for me to mount an argument to it. The West, can more than three teams win the West right now? Is the list longer than Golden State, Memphis, and San Antonio? Probably not. I'm not even sure Memphis is on that list with the way they kind of bog down offensively. So, so we, we talk we just all year said, long about this West that's so insane, but with the state that the Thunder are in, and now Portland's messed up with injuries, and Houston doesn't have Dwight back yet, and the Clippers, I don't know that anybody is you know ready to put their money on them. I mean, I, I, I you know, Golden State is set up pretty well here. Haverstrow was just on, and we I, we had the same three. Golden State, San Antonio has to be taken seriously now that now that Parker looks like Parker and Kawhi's going nuts, and, and Memphis, Slitter's back. That's big too. Yep, and uh, and Memphis, who has not been playing well lately, but I think the pedigree, the fact that they've been in some big series, the fact that they can go big or small, um, I just think they have to be thrown in there. After that, I, I don't really have anyone. I do think. I think the Clippers are going to be a little more dangerous than people think just because of their ability to get the, you know, Chris is really good in crunch time and, uh, and they have two guys on the, on the floor who can create points. But I just think teams are going to be able to get in their heads. I I think that that team is emotionally fragile. Since you see it over and over again, any big game they have on TV, the other team is just trying to mess with them and get them riled up and get them yelling at refs and all that stuff. And they just have not, been able to solve that it's a really strange team i don't get it what do you think of them yeah i mean i you know the jury has been out on them for a while they just they don't you don't just get the vibe that they are fully connected there and yeah. you know i know doc rails at that suggestion and and goes nuts and and, and i have to freely admit to that I, you know i'm not around them as much as others you know i with our armada in L.A., I don't get to L.A. very much to see them, so I only see them if I run into them on the road somewhere. But, uh, you know, they've still got, you know, they're working Blake back now. I mean, they still haven't even been to the conference finals as a group. I mean, that always factors in. I mean, the, you know, San Antonio has looked old for long stretches this season, and, you know, there's that theory that says there's no way they can go to the finals a third straight time. They're exhausted. They can't do it. But, because you know they can get to the finish line, you always give a team like that bonus points. And we just we don't know that about the Clippers. We don't know that about the Houston Rockets. We we don't know that about Golden State. I mean, people forget that Golden State team didn't even win a playoff series last year. So right, those teams have to answer those you know fair or not. They have to answer the questions in the playoffs. That's just the way it is. Did you read the story that Brian Curtis wrote for Grantland on Friday about Oklahoma City in the press? Um, I did. As somebody who has made his bones hanging out in clubhouses and getting information and establishing relationships with players and stuff. What do you think of how Oklahoma city handles that whole situation? I got to say my experience and I, and I, uh, you know, I saw Brian and we kind of chatted for a minute. He told me what, what he was working on. And I, the, the relationship the thunder might have with the local press, uh, you know, and he, you know, nailed it X, Y, and Z. I mean, he, he got tail after tail of how it is and it's, it's not great. But my personal experience with the Thunder hasn't been like that at all. Yeah, uh, Durant, I love covering, and I, you know, he's been as accommodating as any superstar that I can remember with me. Um, and I love, you know, he loves to just chat. He loves to talk about the league, you know, just about stuff going on around the league. So, I mean, I remember I was in Oklahoma. I was in Golden State. It was the night of the Rondo trade, and they're playing. 
it's OKC Golden State. It was the night that that uh, that Durant went nuts in the first half and and then stepped on Spate, you know, rolled his ankle on Maurice Spates' foot, and that was yep. that was a mess for him. But before the game, he he kept coming up to me. What's up with Rondo? Is it done? Is it done? I mean, he just loved talking about stuff like that. So, uh, and then and then Westbrook. Now I've been pretty lucky with Westbrook. I you know I'm doing radio when he wins the final when he wins the All Star MVP. I'm doing TV the night he goes for 49, 16, and 10. So I appreciate that I'm getting him in the best of circumstances. But I uh, I haven't had I haven't had those those issues that 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 Brian spelled out in the piece. So do you how different? I mean, obviously it's different. How much different is it from 20 years ago? Just in general, covering. You know, different teams in the league, and again, and I, I know Bob Ryan's talked about it at length with you. He did an inter- he did a great interview here in Dallas with with the local station where he talked about some of those same things. I don't like to disagree with the commissioner and maybe the best basketball writer we've ever had, but on this point, I don't agree. I I think the access is still doable in the NBA. I still think you can build relationships with guys where they do let you in. It's not. Maybe it's not like the 70s and 80s where, you know, these guys are flying coach the morning after. Of course, it's not like that. Uh, you know, I came in right when charter flights started. So there, that started the separation where writers were no longer on the same flights with the guys. Uh, the, the, the hotels started getting upgraded. So teams started staying in fancier hotels than the media does. So the separation did its start. And there's no question it's not as, as great as it was in the 70s or 80s. But I still think the opportunity is there if you do your job right to get the trust of players and they let you in. And I think, you know, Nash is a great example. You know, Nash and Nowitzki have, have let me, you know, in way more than any writer ever deserves to be around great players. So I, I still think it's possible. Um, look at Lee Jenkins. I mean, LeBron loves Lee Jenkins. You know, he, he built that relationship on his own. So it can still be done. You have to work at it harder. I think one of the bigger obstacles that hasn't been talked about is there's so much more media at everything. Yeah. When you just go to a like game, that. when you go to a practice, I mean, when Nash and Nowitzki broke in with the Mavs, it would be me from the Dallas Morning News, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram guy, and then maybe the odd camera or two at practice. The majority of Mavs functions, it was two, three guys. Maybe the play-by-play guy from radio is there. It's, it was a really small group. Now, every single practice, every single shoot-around, there are 50 reporters at everything. So it, it's just tougher to get that one-on-one time with guys. you got to work harder at it, maybe. But I still think it can be done. I still – I mean, the reason I switched to bat, you know, I, I mean, I, I was so lucky when I got the chance to – you know, in our, I think in our age group, and you and I are basically the same age, I think everybody grew up wanting to be a baseball writer. Baseball was still the number one beat in sports writing. But I did cover some baseball before I got to do the NBA, and I found it really clickish. I found that new writers really were shunned, you know, not just by the players, but by their own colleagues. It was really tough to break in. I've always said in the, in the major North American sports, to me, NBA athletes are the best combination of accessible and willing to show their personality and willing to show their true selves. And that's, to me, that is one of the best things about covering this league, that you – you get to know guys, see guys, and you you really get to see the the personalities. 
they're certainly the most interesting and they have the most varied backgrounds and life experiences and stuff like that. And, and now with Twitter, I still think you get guys kind of, you know, bearing their souls. It's just done differently. Yeah. But I don't right. think it's, I don't think it's as dire as we don't get to talk to these guys at all. Sure. There are, there are some guys who want nothing to do with talking, but, but that's fine too. All right. Get ready for a curveball. You might want to hose yourself down and then we have to go, but we're hitting this topic and then we're going to go. If Barcelona was an NBA team, walk me through what the average week would be like on the internet and on ESPN and uh, with everything we read. How would that team be digested and consumed? Well, you know, Spain, like England, is still a place where there is still a newspaper culture. So the newspapers there, these guys are in a crazy fishbowl as it is. I mean, it's not oh, – no, I I'm, don't know. No, I'm, forget that. Forget the fishbowl part. I'm just saying if the basketball equivalent of what that Barcelona team existed in the NBA, what would happen? Here's the thing, though. I don't think you can make that comparison because it's, we live in a different culture. And our sports attention span is divvied up into too many different sports. Even – if Barcelona relocated right now with Messi to Manhattan, they would still have to fight with with the NBA, the NFL, all these things. I mean, it, it's the the American sports landscape is so much more crowded. Whereas if you go to these other countries, anywhere else in the world, soccer is so much bigger than whatever you want to say is in second place, and that's that's just a difference that's always going to be to me. Like I. You know, again, you could put Barcelona or Real Madrid in the United States and they would still be battling with things like the NCAA tournament. I mean, it's just it's right. we are a, we it is different here. It's just different here than it is all over the world. I guess the one thing that would be interesting is like I get it. Barcelona and Real Madrid are basically equal, but I, I love watching Barcelona so much more. And it really does make me feel like I used to feel like when I watched that 86 Celts and the 87 Lakers, the way they move the ball. I've just never seen anything like it. And they, Messi's been like this for a few years, but the people around him now, it's just like just game after game. And and I guess maybe I, I understand it more just because having gone to so many games with my daughter the last couple of years and they play the Barcelona style. So I actually understand what's going on, but I've just never seen anybody like Messi. I mean, it really like it goes back to Bird and Magic for me. Are the only two people I can even compare it to, and it would be interesting to see the basketball version of him, which I guess would be some sort of combination of Nash, Bird, and Magic all rolled into one point guard. Basically, um, it would be interesting to see how that would resonate with casual fans. Does that make sense? Well, and the way they're approaching it now, because they've put two absolute elite attackers with him yes it's just it's a different approach even for them and Real Madrid's well, kind of done the same thing I mean they've both loaded up so heavily on offensive geniuses and it probably takes someone like Messi to make it work I mean he has no position if you watch him he goes right. everywhere <laughs> and and it, it works but it works I mean he well, is what, so but what good they he did, makes though, it work what they did with the equivalent of Pat Riley in 1987 being like, I want to make Showtime better. I've just bought Dominique Wilkins and Michael Jordan. And no, those are not going to be Magic's fast break partners. Yeah, I mean, that's almost, James that's almost what, it, what it's like because, you know, Suarez and Neymar in their own right. I mean, a lot of people thought it wouldn't work. And 
at Real Madrid, they have that same concern because you got Ronaldo with Bale and other great attackers. So, I mean, it's... It's not the same, though. It's not the same watching them as it is with Barcelona. I just I just can't get over Messi. I just never... I, I, I honestly feel like he's better at soccer than anyone is at anything else. just think he's on another level. And, and it's like, it totally makes sense to me why in the World Cup his teams wouldn't come through because... It's almost like when the other guys rise closer to what his level is, then like that's when the crazy stuff happens, you know. No, also it's, it's like, eleven on eleven too. It's just harder for one guy to yes. pull a team by the scruff of its neck in soccer than it is in hoops. That's just the reality. Were you impressed by how many stops your uh, your goalie had against them? I he am because I thought I he was, had one of the greatest performances was in the because, history of the goalkeeper. Well, it's my eight, my youngest favorite player is is the city goalkeeper. So that anything he does is a big deal in the Stein household. My yeah. eight year old wants to be a goalkeeper, which is a little bit frightening because I think playing goalkeeper could be more as dangerous as playing gridiron football with all yeah. the injuries you can have. It's true. There, but he stopped. But, I mean, there. You know, everybody asked me, "Are you are you over it?" I was over it before kickoff. There was no way City was going to win that game. They should have given up seven goals. That guy stopped like five one v ones, and then like three other plays. It was this insane. This is great to see that you're watching it like a hawk now. What happened? It, so it's all because of your daughter. Yeah, pretty much. I, I we watch every Barcelona game together, and and uh, and I just think that's that's my favorite two hours of the week, or sometimes when they play twice. But um, I just I I just love watching them. I just love it. I can't get it. And the other thing is, if you like basketball, I actually think you'd like watching Barcelona, even if you don't like soccer. I would I would urge people to give them a chance because the triangles and the give and go and the unsell like it's it, there's a lot of basketball similarities to it. I really I really believe that. Well, I think Nash I don't think they're that used that brain. I think that soccer brain always served him well. I mean, he right. he's always said, you know, he spent my whole life playing soccer trying to. You know, spoon the ball to to the open guy with my feet. Now I get to do it with my hands. It's a lot easier. It's freelancing, but it's not, and that's kind of what the what the uh, the Hawks have done. It's it's a lot of what the Spurs do, and it's a lot of what the Warriors do. I think it's movement, but it's also like understanding. Like if I go here, this guy knows I'm doing this, and then this is going to happen. But then that'll, ha- you know, they're thinking three moves ahead of what the initial move is. And then on top of it, just when you have somebody like Messi and once the other guys have figured out, and I, th- I think Suarez, what does he have, eight goals in the last nine games or something? Suarez has now figured out Messi. And maybe he didn't right away. Yeah, I mean, that's the but, thing. It's uh, just not easy, you know, to, to be, I mean, they've got three focal points on their team. I mean, so it, does, it was always going to take a minute to work. Now, the one thing I think they also have at their advantage, the Spanish league as a whole is so weak that they yeah. get weeks and weeks and weeks to work on it because outside of Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, and you know maybe the odd game from somebody else, I mean, they never get pushed in the league. So they get weeks and weeks and weeks to work on it. So they're more ready for Champions League, where I, I think in England you're more susceptible to losing a league game here and there, and that puts more pressure right. on you. But no, they're, I mean, look, they're, I mean, Nash said the same thing. I mean, he watches every, you know, he's not a Barcelona fan, but he makes sure he watches every Barcelona game to. because they're, they're must-see. I will say the one guy I love who's not on Barcelona, who I'm totally into, is Benzema. 
I just think he's probably the closest to Westbrook out of all the soccer players. Like if we, you always hear like the if the NBA guys played soccer arguments, and Benzema is. I actually think Westbrook, if he had just played soccer from age three on, maybe would have been like Benzema on, on a on, you know, a blown out version of it. But uh, I, I enjoy watching him. Well, and then this I is found what out, American soccer needs. We just need one Westbrook out there, just yeah. one, in this country of how many ever millions of people we have. Just one or two Westbrooks to play soccer instead of hoops. Well, and then the and then the United States could 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 move up the ladder. But, another one I was thinking: Can you imagine Kyrie on a soccer field from like age four on, like with his first step and the way he bounces off people and stuff and all that stuff that he does? And he's not too tall. Um, I think he would be incredible, or he would have been incredible, I should say. And like Isaiah Thomas, all five eight of him or whatever. Like that's another one. Like he would be incredible. That's a good like, height just, in soccer. You want to be oh. low to the ground, so that would work just fine. I do wonder, I was talking about this with one of my soccer dad friends, uh, whether if people start gravitating away from football, um, if you're going to just see soccer and basketball get some of those athletes, you know, people who normally would have just had a football arc, whether it's at wide receiver or quarterback or whatever, whether those people just drift from soccer to soccer at age nine instead of playing youth football. Um, Maybe that's how they get a couple of these guys. It's always been a point of contention in the American soccer community. Just you know, some of the if just if just a small handful of the top top athletes would occasionally end up on a soccer field instead of in the other sports. Right. What a difference it would make. I will say this: having really gone through it with my daughter, who who plays all the time and is on a club team, all that stuff, and watching how much smarter she got about soccer as she's she's not even ten yet, but during age nine. I don't think you can pick up soccer when you're 12 or 13. I feel like there's so much that's ingrained those first 10 years about spacing and just movements that become habits that you're not even thinking of. I don't know how you pick that up after. Yeah, it's it's age still 13. we we are Americans are still not born with a soccer brain. And no. what really like illustrated it for me, my oldest um FC Dallas's best player was on my oldest team for a couple years. Yeah. And he was two years younger than everybody on the team, but just on his brain, he was Colombian-born. And just, just coming from a soccer country at age six, you could see that this kid had the same brain that his dad, the star of FC Dallas, had. Right. And nobody else on the team could even be on the same wavelength with the way this little kid saw the game. And it's just that's, you know, we're still not there yet. And no. I don't know, And I don't know how long it's going to take, and I don't – you know, I don't know. If, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever possible. That's that's above my pay grade to figure that out. But yeah, I think it would have to be before ten. But I think there's some basketball players like that too. I think the way Curry sees the game, um, Nash, as you pointed out, like, yeah, and that's it was our like, game. Well, he that's like our a soccer game. player. Yeah, you know, that's Curry, our game. You bring a six-year-old yeah. over here and stick him in a basketball game, and I'm sure they're they'd be lost at sea. Right. All right, Mark Stein. Uh, thanks for being on my first. Uh, official new podcast for the second time in the history of any official new podcast I've had. Uh, we will read you on ESPN.com. Look forward to your – did you do your third trimester awards? When do those come out? Like in a week? They come out the uh, the final – I'll put them out the day uh, – a couple days before the ballots are turned in. Who Real quick, who's uh, who's your MVP? 
I think it had we Haverstone and I just talked about it. it's got I think it's gotta be Curry if if the Warriors are in the high sixties. Just has to. They 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 just hit too many benchmarks. Um, Curry and Harden for sure in the lead. We got yeah. we got twenty five days to figure it out. Harden's season is incredible to me. Just like just that they've been able to stay in the hunt for a three seed with all the stuff that's happened in their team. So I think those are the two that are left. But who knows? All right, Mark Stein, a pleasure as always. Talk to you soon. All right, pal. Uh-huh.